The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear Douglas Murray on how the pandemic has made cynics of us all, Paul Wood on why after 10 years he and his family are finally leaving Lebanon, and finally, Tanya Gould gives us her review of a Batman-themed restaurant. First up, Douglas Murray. The pandemic has made cynics of us all. A report by MPs into the spread of the coronavirus has concluded that the government's approach constituted one of this country's worst ever public health failures. The MPs say the early fondness for herd immunity plus the delay in locking the country down ended up costing thousands of lives. What makes this worse is that everything the government did was done at the suggestion of its leading scientific advisers witty, valance and sage. And so one feels another slippage of faith. On this occasion, relating to the imperium not of government, but of scientists. I know some people will be amazed that I should have any remaining trust in government scientific advisers, but everybody has to trust somebody, and I tend to trust people who know about things I do not. If I break a bone, I do not do my own research into the best ways to heal it, but rather go to the professionals. Likewise, if a global pandemic hits, then I trust the people whose job it is to have been thinking about this before today. Of course, much of what has happened in the past year and a half has spectacularly eroded that trust. Watching Neil Ferguson's predictions proving to be off again and again did not help matters, nor the fact that the faulty predictions just kept coming. I know people who haven't trusted anything they've been told over the past year and a half. Some are now in the position of refusing to take the vaccine and hunkering down for a life of home cooking. I don't agree with them, I am pro-vaccine, anti-mandate, but I see ever more clearly where their position comes from. Once you have seen through an institution, it is very hard to unsee things. Yet we already know where this leads. The American right offers a strong but salutary example. This is not to beat up the American right, as British columnists are wont to do. I actually like the American right. But recent years have offered a stark example of what happens when the public see through their institutions. Even five years ago, you would speak to conservative Americans and be able to predict with great ease which aspects of their nation they had faith in. They would be reliably pro-law enforcement, wildly in favour of the armed forces and the nation's security apparatus. And, while everybody was used to political figures letting them down, there were plenty of parts of the state that still produced a feeling of respect, indeed reverence. 
In the space of only a few years, all that has changed. Today, the American right is openly contemptuous of institutions and individuals it revered only a few years ago. It still admires the soldiery, but it loathes the military top brass. The evening talk shows and conservative journalists do not only disagree with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they mock him. It is the same with the CIA, FBI and NSA. The nation's intelligence and security agencies used to be regarded as the Rolls Royces of America's national security armory. Today, the American right says things about each of these agencies that were said over the past decade only by Assangeists or Snowdenite bloggers of the far left. American conservatives now loathe these institutions, viewing them as corrupt and untrustworthy. It is the same with other branches of government, like the Internal Revenue Service, much of the judicial system, and then, the real biggie, the system of voter registration, or lack thereof, and the way in which votes are counted after elections. One recent poll found that 78% of Republicans do not believe Joe Biden won the election last November. To translate this into the British context, it would be as though conservatives in the UK loathed the heads of the military, were openly resentful and suspicious of MI5, MI6 and GCHQ, believed that the inland revenue and every other arm of government was against them, and that the electoral system had put in the wrong winner. It is almost unimaginable. And besides, what exactly would be conservative about a person or a movement which believed that every single one of the nation's institutions had been corrupted? Once you believe this, you must believe that the institutions should effectively be pulled down and salted over or subjected to some other revolutionary shake-up. At which point you have to wonder what exactly it is you are conservative about. But the American right did not get to this position accidentally. It got to it because institution after institution in its country actually did prove to be corrupted in some way. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs really was defending the teaching of critical race theory at West Point while Afghanistan fell into the hands of the Taliban. The former head of the NSA and CIA really did compare Trump voters with that same Taliban. The IRS and other government departments actually have been found targeting conservative institutions and individuals for political ends. And voter registration in the US is a corruptible mess. There is currently a row over whether or not voters should have to show ID when they show up at the polls. The left says, surprise, surprise, that it is racist to make such a demand. So it is that currently in many states you have to show more paperwork in the form of vaccination certificates to enter a McDonald's than you do to turn up to vote. The American public are right to be jaded and cynical about these institutions. And if the American left is mildly less cynical at present, it is only because its guy got in this time. Always a good spur to suppress concerns. But it could happen the other way too. The American right got into this revolutionary position because its institutions proved corruptible, if not corrupt, and it saw through them one by one. As I watch the magisterium of the scientists recede in our own country, I'm not happy about the thought that it could happen here too.
That was Douglas Murray. Next, we have Paul Wood. I'm sorry, Lebanon. We love you, but we can't take it anymore. We're breaking up with you. We've lived in Lebanon on and off for almost 10 years. Our retreat began in the summer when we couldn't face going to the beach with our two-year-old daughter. Every year, Lebanese scientists publish a report saying that the seawater around many of Lebanon's beaches is full of faecal bacteria. Raw sewage is discharged into the sea along Lebanon's coast. From some beaches, you can actually see the pipe. You are literally swimming in shit. Lebanon's failure to do something as basic as treat its sewage is one result of its toxic politics. The venality of the people in charge is visible all around. Drive out of Beirut and every green space has been built over. Building without a permit is a simple matter of bribing your local police and politicians. The police lieutenant kicks some of the bribe up to his captain, who sends some up to his colonel, and so on. A Lebanese general may well be a dollar millionaire, despite a pittance of an official salary. A Lebanese politician can get even richer. The corruption could perhaps be forgiven if it weren't for the incompetence. Since the Civil War, Lebanon hasn't had enough electricity. Now, with the economy collapsing, power can be off for 20 hours a day. It shut down altogether over the weekend. So Beirut has to rely on thousands of diesel generators. They're run by the hated generator mafias, whose political clout may be another reason the power crisis is never solved. Fat particles of soot carpet your windowsill. The air is thick with carcinogens. And you don't even get a reliable power supply from all this, because there's a fuel crisis as well. Our mobile phone signal dies. The phone company tells us there's no electricity for the cell tower in our neighbourhood of Jamezi. Jamezi is one of Beirut's smartest areas, yet the streets are filthy. Small bones crunch under your feet. Rats have been into piles of rubbish left to fester on street corners. The poor have been digging through the bins again, throwing everything onto the ground as they search for something to sell or eat. Beggars are everywhere. An old man in an ancient but well-tailored blue suit stands by the open window of a restaurant for foreigners and rich Lebanese. He extends a palm to the diners, who try to ignore him. His other hand holds on to a small boy, his grandson. The man looks at his feet, humiliated. But his grandson is hungry, he says. I try to avoid giving money to people using children to beg, but I broke my own rule before we left. Most days, a young woman in a black hijab sat nursing a toddler on the pavement near our house. She was short and plump under her abaya. Her little boy was painfully thin. He always seemed to be asleep, just as well. The heat was fierce. One day, she was there, but not the little boy. He was sick, she said. I'm afraid he might die if I bring him to the street again. Noor was Syrian and had fled to Lebanon because of the war. She and her husband couldn't read or write and had never had any kind of proper job. He was a street shoeshine, she was a beggar. She said she had tried for years to get pregnant with her son Mohammed. He was our gift from God. I was shocked when she told me he was almost three. I would have put his age at 18 months, he was so small. She said he'd had a fever ever since the winter and they couldn't afford the medicine the doctor said he needed.
I offered to pay for Mohammed's treatment. All she had to do was go to the clinic in the refugee camp and put the doctor on the phone. I thought she was right that Mohammed might not last if she brought him back to the street. How much did she make in a year, I asked. How much would it take for her to stay at home with him? The amount she made from begging was pitiful, about $100 a year. I gave her that much. She took it and left. My friend Gassan had been helping to translate, and a few hours later he found Noor on the next street, laughing with her friends. Over the following weeks, she never telephoned from the doctor's office at the refugee camp. Perhaps the baby had been hers, Gassan said. Perhaps not. Babies were rented out and passed around between different beggars. He said, the gangs school them in what to say. Gassan thought that begging was big business. Street gangs, the local police and armed militias all took a cut. For him, the sight of beggars everywhere was another symptom of Lebanon's sickness. I'd given Noor the hundred dollars in Lebanese money. This was handed over in a great pile of hundred thousand lira notes, all bought on the black market, two million in total. The lira has lost 95% of its value over the past two years. As the economy crumbles, the aid agencies say that children go to bed hungry in a third of Lebanese families. Hospitals don't have antibiotics or even surgical thread. As with the sewage pumped off Lebanon's coast, the politicians responsible for this disaster keep floating back to the surface. The new Prime Minister, Najib Mikati, Lebanon's richest man, has been Prime Minister twice before and was once accused of corruption by a state prosecutor, a charge he denies. The past two years have been like watching a country slowly cut its own throat. For now, there doesn't seem to be anybody capable of stopping the bleeding. Many other foreigners are leaving like us. Lebanese too, if they can afford it. We're now in Florence, where my wife's family is from. As the Italians, especially the Florentines, were for centuries, the Lebanese are energetic, creative people at the mercy of corrupt leaders and brutal political facts. They are resilient and they will survive, even if Lebanon does not. That was Paul Wood. And finally, Tanya Gould. There is a Batman restaurant in London. Or rather, there was. Savini at the Criterion on Piccadilly Circus. Savini was a haunted grey Italian restaurant that closed in 2018 and was artistically dependent on salt. It appeared in the dark night, in which Batman, who is Bruce Wayne to everyone but himself, I have a theory that everyone knows Bruce Wayne is Batman, but they pretend not to because he is an orphan, owned this restaurant, in which case he should have fixed the telephone lines. Savini was plagued by a dispute with BT. But because you cannot ever have enough of a strange thing, there is a new Batman restaurant to the north on Brewer Street, Soho, under a calm Edwardian wedding cake, which was once Marco Pierre White's Titanic. It is called Park Row, Gotham City, and it is the silliest restaurant to open in London since the all-cereal restaurant in Brick Lane. This does not mean I do not like it. Park Row is a vast Art Deco basement, a land without sunlight. Restaurant after restaurant squats here, rests a while and leaves. This one will too. Perhaps it should be a gym. The entrance is thrilling. A fake English library. Donald Trump's idea of an English library with a copy of The Pilgrim's Progress in a lamp. A bookcase moves aside to let you in. Then there is a dark and curling staircase, which should be surrounded by dry ice, but isn't. 
Inside are a series of rooms devoted to Batman and the villains on whom he is entirely psychologically dependent. If this restaurant had a hashtag, it would be, we are all Batman. It is a museum of childhood grief then, and also a brasserie. It is morbid and absurd and slightly heartbreaking. There is a painting of the child Bruce Wayne with his murdered parents, and everywhere I find red roses because his mother loved them. The staff are in league with Batman's imagined subconscious. They talk about the roses. Here you identify not with the living, but the fictional and very rich, and with those two who want to destroy them. Poison Ivy has a bar with plastic plants crawling across the ceiling. The Joker's lair has a bust of William Shakespeare, his mouth given paint for a Joker's smile. The Penguin has the central bar, presided over by a statue of a penguin, which I think should be bigger. Catwoman has a carpet and copies of missing old masters dragged by her claws. Was she a good thief or just a sexual fetishist? The Monarch Theatre serves a tasting menu as a huge, immersive screen plays. They change wildly with each course. Park Row is mad, but it is not lazy. The food varies from room to room and follows its theme. I think I'm in the Penguin's Iceberg Lounge, but who knows? We eat nitro popcorn, very cold popcorn, though edible balloons are off tonight. The Goosenark truffle-glazed whole chicken, £72, is prettily served. Any Batman restaurant would care about aesthetics, but it is warm, not hot, and soggy, not crispy. It is villainous, and it is dead. Pudding, though, is extraordinary. The ruins of Gotham City is part chocolate cake and part sculpture, and Kiss from a Rose, a vanilla custard tart, includes a frozen rose, which the waiter shatters over the tart as decoration and metaphor. It is wildly inconsistent then, like Batman himself, and though gaudy and interesting, I am not sure who it is for. The perennially infantilised and unhappy and rich? For Batman himself? The problem for this restaurant is, how many like him are there? That was Tanya Gould. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel, and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.